if you'd like to turn uh, to a passage, last week I didn't have you turn to a passage of Scripture, and it almost killed me to not have you turn. So uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and I want to show you something. I'm going to share something with you. The last part of this message today, the last part of my testimony, will be something that I've never, ever shared publicly. And uh, I actually just heard many of the details from my mother just a few days ago. And so I'll, I'll share that with you, but it's something that happened in our family even before I was born, but it shaped me in a way that I want to share it with you because I think it may help you understand that there could be some roots that are in your family that have shaped you that you might not even know or understand. Uh, so we're calling this series Room 12. The reason we're calling it Room 12 is because I accepted Christ in, in a motel room. Uh, I was not in church when I got saved. You know, you don't have to be in church to be saved. Uh, you're not going to die in a funeral home. It's convenient, but it probably won't happen. But okay, so anyway, so I… <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. So, I, but I brought a… There's a, a picture of the key uh, of the actual motel room where I got saved, Jake's, Jake's Motel. Uh, it, it has no stars, by the way. Uh, Jake's Motel, room 12. And uh, I want to share a little bit about my mother's side of the family. My, my great-grandfather uh, used to be in the Pawnee Bill Wild West show. Any of you, any of you ever heard of Pawnee Bill or Buffalo Bill, the, the Wild West show? And there's a book uh, that you can actually get. Uh, I don't know if you would want to but or not, but let me show you the copy of the book. It's called Pawnee Bill's Wild West. Uh, written by Alan Farnham, who's a descendant of Pawnee Bill. But we're going to blow up the bottom part there, and it says, Photos, Harry V. Bach. That's my great-grandfather, Harry Bach. So he took the pictures, most of the pictures uh, in this book. Some are of him, so obviously didn't, didn't, they didn't have iPhones back then, but he didn't take those. Uh, but here's a picture of my great-grandfather, and if you can read at the bottom, it says, Buckskin Harry. He's a good-looking guy, wasn't he? <laughs> wasn't he? No, I'm kidding. Okay. So, <laughs> but this is uh, my great-grandfather. So, he rides with the Wild West Show. He gets saved, becomes a believer. He leads Pawnee Bill to Christ, and then he wants to become a missionary to the Pawnee Indians. And this is the next picture I have shows, if you see at the bottom, missionary Harry Bach posing with the elders of the Pawnee Indians church that he started. So that's my, and he actually, Pawnee Bill supported him uh, the rest of his life to be a missionary to the Pawnee Indians. Pawnee Bill uh, also uh, was out, they were out hunting buffalo one day, and uh, my great-grandfather was gored by a buffalo, and Pawnee Bill took him back and, and saved his life. So that's a little bit of my history. Now, Harry Bach, my great-grandfather, had a son named Robert Bach, and that's who I am named after. But I'm going to share with you about my grandfather named Robert, again, toward the, toward the end of the message. Um, I, I call this, this message Rebellious Roots. I, I've, I've, we talked about religious roots and how religion can actually make us think that we're a believer or a Christian, but we're really not. Um, and then we, we talked um, last week, we talked about religious roots, you know, two weeks ago. Last week, I'll just give you a quiz. Do you remember the name of the message last week? Rejection roots. 
We talked about rejection and how rejection formed me in my early days and could keep us away from Christ and this weak rebellious roots. Um, my rebellion took a form uh, of immorality uh, that I don't like to talk about much. Uh, I, I was very sexually immoral uh, as a teenager. And it started early in my life, and it, became, it was very easy for me. Now, I'm going to share something with you that um, I've really had to struggle with sharing the details, things that I want, I'm going to be sharing with you today. But um, when I say it was easy for me, uh, I, 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 I was very immoral, and I was immoral a lot. And I can remember a conversation with my friends, uh, and they, they said, the one of them said, uh, you're just blessed. That's what they said. Because we would go out and meet girls, and I would end up being immoral uh, just, from a one, just in one night. And, and so they began actually, it's so, it's so horrible to share this because of what the word blessed means to me now and that I've written a book called The Blessed Life, and it's about giving, not taking. And it's about giving to give, not giving to get. So it's the total opposite of the way I was before I met Christ. Here's what I've realized. I was not blessed, I was cursed. There was a, a curse on my life where immorality came easy for me. In other words, there was a bent toward that. I'm gonna show you that the Lord showed me what the root of that curse was. The reason I'm going to show you is because I think there's, if there's a bent toward your life in a cert, toward a certain sin, maybe God could show you the root and you could cut the root off and not have that fruit anymore. You understand what I'm saying? Um, I learned to lie and manipulate. Uh, because I also had rejection, uh, I didn't want to be rejected. So I looked for the girls that would be the most susceptible. And I learned how to spot this in girls. Please hear me. There's a reason I'm, I'm sharing this. Uh, the very thing, ladies that the world tells you to give a man before marriage so that you can keep him is the very thing that will cause you to lose him. Uh, I looked for girls that did not have a good relationship with their father. I learned to spot that. I looked for girls that were insecure. And uh, I don't know, now I look back on this, I can tell I did it. It wasn't like a plan that I had, but I could, I could spot this. Uh, girls were made to be held by men. And if they are not held, if that need is not met in a healthy way by their father, they will meet it in an unhealthy way. But you need to understand that if a man does not respect you, he cannot love you. He cannot love you. As a matter of fact, fulfilled lust turns to hate. And I, I wish I had time to show you the whole passage. 2 Samuel 13 talks about Amnon and Tamar, and that Amnon really loved her. He loved her, and that Tamar loved him. Uh, but Amnon forces her and uh, rapes her. And then I want to just show you one, one verse. Really, I'd love for you to read the whole chapter later. Verse, seven, verse 15 says, then Amnon, this is right after uh, it happens, then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said, arise and be gone. And she said, no, please don't send me away. And he actually calls a servant and says, throw this woman out and bolt the door behind her. Um, there is, God meant for us to express love in a healthy way. 
because of the lust that was in my life, I, it, it has taken years for me to get over the images and the things that I saw that no person should have ever seen. And the appetites that were created in me that God never intended to be created in me. Please understand that when God says don't, there's a reason. And I'll just give you one quick so that you, hopefully you'll understand this. Uh, in order to have premarital sex, you have to sneak around to do it. And you have to lie and you have to be deceptive and you have to be manipulative. You, you have, for instance, let me just take a teenage couple. When the teenager is about to go out and the parents say, where y'all going tonight? They don't say, we're going to have sex. <laughs> so they have to lie. And then when they come back, where'd you, where'd you go? What'd you do? They have to lie. So you learn to lie. You learn to be deceptive. And you get this um, feeling in you of adrenaline, adrenaline rush, because you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing. But once you get married, you don't have to sneak around anymore. But you've developed an appetite for sneaking around sex, that sex in marriage can never satisfy that appetite because you don't have to sneak around. And this is why a man will begin to talk to someone at the office and begin to flirt and he is satisfying, and I'm going to say this in a very strong way, but he's satisfying an appetite that you created in him. And I'm not saying that it's right, but I'm trying to get you to understand how important it is not to create an appetite in someone before your marriage. Don't stir up love before it's time, Song of Solomon says. And what will happen is this, this man will begin to have an affair, and now he's sneaking around, and He's beginning, he'll, he'll begin to feel like with her like he felt with you before you got married. And he associates that feeling with love. So he'll begin to think that he loves her and not you. So he divorces you, marries her, and guess what? He doesn't have to sneak around anymore. This is why many men will say it's just not the same. It's just not the same. And then they will bring things into their sex life that God didn't intend to try to spice it up, quote unquote. It's not the same because you created an appetite. I'm, I'm telling you that my wife and I, we had to deal with things that we should not have had to deal with because of my sin. And I asked the Lord after I got uh, saved, God, what, what was the root? Why? You know, they said I was blessed. I know I wasn't blessed. I was cursed. Multiple, multiple affairs. And I don't understand this, God. And so what was the root? What was the open door in my life? And I want to show you a scripture I showed you a few weeks ago, but it's going to kind of shock you when, when you see this. Hebrews 12, verses 15 and 16 says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. This word means morally defiled. Many, this is my life, what you're reading this verse is my life. Many became morally defiled. Now watch the very next verse, but it's the same sentence. And I just want to take the first five words. Lest there be any fornicator. It goes on, or profane person among you. Okay, lest there be a fornicator. Don't let a root of bitterness spring up, or many will be morally defiled because there will be a fornicator among you. I was the fornicator. And I was the, I believe this open door in my life was because there was a root of bitterness in our family. And when I share with you what happened that I've never shared publicly, and I got my mother's permission to share this this week, you'll understand why uh, there was bitterness in our family. 
Um, I told you about my grandfather who was named Robert Bach, and I'm named after him. Uh, he, was, he owned a dairy farm, but he also, they started a church in their home. My grandfather started a church, founded a church, church planner among the Pawnee Indians. My grandfather then started the Trinity Baptist Church in El Dorado, Arkansas, in his home. And the, uh, he would preach until they got a pastor, until they, then they got a building. They took a metal building, disassembled it from a guy's house. They bought some land. They put it on the land, put it up, and that's where the church came from. But it started in my grandfather's home. He had built a little rent house on his property. He rented it to a woman named Mrs. Brown. Mrs. Brown had two children. There was only, there was only a little one-bedroom rent house. And she eventually rented the house on the other side of my grandparents' So she asked my grandfather if her ex-husband, they were divorced because he had mental problems, and they didn't know that at the time that he had mental problems, um, but she asked if he could rent the little guest house. So you have to see my grandparents' house was in the middle. Mrs. Brown was on this side, Mr. Brown in the little rent house that my grandparents owned on this side, and he would cross their yard. And my grandfather did it because he thought that a father should be near his children. Uh, he rented the house for three years. He never paid rent one time, not once. My grandfather would, say, would try to get him to help in the dairy to do it. He, he would walk by. My mother said, I remember him walking by, but he would talk to himself when he walked by. And he started getting angry. And he eventually said something one day to my grandmother that we don't know to this day what, what he said, but it was inappropriate. And he said something to my grandmother, and my grandmother told my grandfather that night at dinner, and he said, I'm going to have to go down and talk to him, and I'm going to tell him that I'm going to have to bring the authorities in, and he can't live there anymore. Uh, and he felt like it's not safe for our family. So my grandfather went down to talk to him. My mother then, it was a Wednesday night, went into the bathroom to get ready. She was singing in the church choir for the choir that night. She went in to get ready, and her window was on the side of the house. Her, the bathroom was on the side of the house where the rent house was, and the window was open. And she heard my grandfather and Mr. Brown begin arguing, and it was very violent. And so she ran in and told my grandmother. My grandmother immediately, my mother said, I remember her taking her apron off and running. And she went running down to the house. Well, as she was running to the house, she heard a gunshot. And he had shot my grandfather in the chest. She came to the house, and Mr. Brown said, don't come in or I'll shoot you too but she went in anyway. My grandfather was struggling to stand and she tried to hold him up and the man shot, shot him two more times while she was trying to hold him. She told my mother she felt the air from the bullets go by her. It's amazing that, um, that, she, didn't, that, he did, that she didn't get shot. Uh, he was shot three times with a 45 caliber, which is a large caliber gun. Uh, he had eight bullet holes in him, though, because one of the bullets went into his arm, came out his arm, went then in his chest, and came out his back. So he had eight bullet holes. Uh, and then my uncle, in other words, my grandparent's son, my mother's sister, my mother's brother, heard that first shot, but he was in the dairy. And he took off running, and then he heard the two shots on his way. And when he got to the house, uh, he called for his father, and Mr. Brown said, don't come in here or I'll kill you too. And so he waited. He didn't know if his parents were dead or what. He didn't know. He just knew there'd been three shots. My grandfather then realized he's going to kill. I'm going to die. He's going to kill my wife. He's going to kill my son. So my grandfather with three bullets, three shots, um, held him down, held this man down. Um, 
and, and then called for uh, his son, my uncle, to come in and get the gun away from him. But my grandfather held him down with three shots in him. My grandfather was a, uh, a very a strong man. He, he, he rescued a woman from a burning building and received a hero's reward. As a matter of fact, I have a picture of the medal that he received. It says Robert Bach uh, for rescuing a woman from a burning building. And he got uh, his leather coat caught on fire when he rolled out round on the ground, his neck and his face and his shoulders and all were bar- burned and he had scars for the rest of his life from that. But they said she would have surely died if he hadn't rescued her. So he holds the man down so he can't shoot anymore until my uncle comes in and takes the gun away from him. And my mother, when she heard the shot, she said, I knew, I knew what had happened. And so she called for an ambulance. Back then there's no 911. You know, you called an operator and asked to be connected. So then she said when she came out of the house, she saw my uncle, her brother, and my grandmother, her mother, uh, bringing my grandfather up to the house and blood all over his front of his shirt and blood all over them. And she told me this Thursday when we talked on the phone, she said, I don't know why, but I ran the other way. I didn't run to him, I ran away. She said, I think that I thought he's, my father's going to die and I don't want to see him die. And she ran to the back porch and began crying. And um, neighbors came, they brought a cot out and to keep him in the shade and put it under a tree and they laid him on the down and they began to put ice and uh, compression compressors on him to try to stop the bleeding. And it took a long time for the ambulance to get there. This is just the way it was in a small town. This was in 1951. And uh, my mother finally decided, I, I want to talk to him before he dies. And so she came around the house and um, she said there were a lot of people gathered around, they were praying, but she couldn't talk to him. She said he was uh, in so much pain and uh, he was now coughing up blood. And so she just stood and watched. I thought about this Thursday. I thought no girl should ever see this. So the ambulance came and they took him to the hospital. They did surgery on him most of the night and he survived the surgery. And he began to get better and better. Um, He lived for 10 days after the shooting and they thought he was going to go home. Uh, she went and visited him every day. My mother did. And she told him, I'm going to uh, get a job and take care of mother. Uh, which, by the way, uh, she kept that promise. And uh, when I was growing up, my grandmother lived in our home, and my mother and my father took care of her until she passed away. But she said, I'm looking for a job so I can take care of mother for you. Because they didn't know what kind of life he would have if he survived this. And so anyway, um, uh, as I said, I, I told you the, about the, uh, well, let me go ahead. Um, on Friday, nine days after he was, had been shot, and again, they thought he was gaining strength back and going to go home. She told him, she said, I won't be coming to see you tomorrow on Saturday because I've gotten a job now, and tomorrow's my first day. She went to work the next day. My grandmother went to the hospital. My grandfather started having pain. For some reason, the doctor told the nurse, um, I, I don't want to come in this weekend, uh, do not call me. Just do not call me unless it's an emergency. An abs- but it has to be an absolute emergency, I do not want to be called. One, one doctor, small town, uh, my grandfather began having pain in his chest. Uh, we know now he had a blood clot. And he began saying, I've, I've got to have the doctor, I've got to have the doctor. The nurse said, the doctor does not want to be 
disturbed. Um, you know, you're, you have indigestion or something. He said, no, something's wrong with my heart. And for six hours, he begged the nurse to call the doctor. And he said to my grandmother, one of the last things he said was, if the doctor doesn't come, I'm going to die. And uh, he did. He passed away. She, um, when the doctor did come, my grandmother said, why didn't you come? Why wouldn't you let the nurse call you? His response was, uh, I never expected your husband to live anyway. Uh, other doctors uh, said if he had been given blood thinner, he probably would have lived. So you can see how it was very difficult for my mother, for my family, because of this. The man that shot him was declared insane. Uh, my mother has two newspaper clippings about my grandfather, my, her father. Uh, I have a picture of those two clippings. Uh, the one on the right, we'll blow it up a little bit. The one on the right says local uh, fire hero given $50 check. This was in 1928. This is when he rescued the woman from the burning building. So this is one that he's a hero. The second one uh, says that the man charged with slaying landlord declared insane. So we felt like the doctor could have saved his life. We felt like the man that shot him, he was insane, but it was the word that was used was temporary insanity. It was difficult for my mother because she thought, she said to me this Thursday, she said, I would think anyone that shoots another human being is temporarily insane. Uh, he went to a mental institution. He escaped one time, came back, and uh, came to his ex-wife's uh, house, Mrs. Brown, and, was try and tried to kill her and was choking her, and her son came in from work right at that time and stopped him. Otherwise, he would have killed her too. This was a root of bitterness in my family. Uh, when I was young, I asked my mother, why am I named Robert? She said, because my father was named Robert. And I said, where is he? And she started crying and she said, he's not here. I think that that sense that she had, that had it, my mother's a very godly woman. You have to remember, no therapy back then, no counseling no freedom ministry, no kairos, no understanding of the Holy Spirit. My mother had a choice to allow that bitterness to stay in her or to turn it around. She turned it around, but I think there was still that root in our family. My mother chose to forgive. My grandmother chose to forgive. She continued to be friends for the rest of her life with Mrs. Brown. They forgave the family. They actually said to the family, we forgive you. But there was a root. The root was exactly what I talked about a few weeks ago, the root of bitterness. And if you remember, we talked about the bitterness is toward God. Because for years, my family felt like, God, why did you let this happen? To such a wonderful man, to such a kind man, to such a godly man, why did you let this happen? I believe that root of bitterness caused many to be defiled. And I think that the enemy then did everything he could to keep me from coming to Christ. But my mother chose to move on. She chose to forgive. She never told anyone that her father was killed uh, the whole time that we, my sister and I were growing up because she didn't want us to know that. She just said he passed away. When I was in my late teens, she told her best friend. And it was shortly after that that I came to Christ. I'm not saying that that's the reason. I do believe, though, that something was breaking in the spirit world. Here's the reason that I'm telling you this. Is there a bent in your life that you can't get free from? 
Because in my life, there was a bent toward immorality, and I couldn't get free. Without Christ, I couldn't get free. When I hung up the phone this past week from talking to my mother, I started crying. And this thought came to my mind. I thought, a daughter should not have to see her father murdered. And the very next thought I had was, and I felt like the Lord was speaking it to me. I felt like the Lord said to me, and a father should not have to watch his son murdered. But he did. God the Father watched his son murdered so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And we want to help you. I want to help you. Maybe you didn't have happen in your family what we had happen in our family, but I'm sure there are painful memories from your past. Difficulties, things from your childhood that roots, that took root in your life and you've struggled with some sin for years. The only way to break that bondage is through Jesus Christ. I want to help you. If you need to give your life to Christ, that's what I did in that motel room. Saying to God, God, I can't change. I don't know how to change. I don't know how to get free in this area of my life. I don't know. But if you want me, you can have me. I want to help you today to do that as well. I want to help you to give your life to Jesus Christ. I think there are a lot of people who believe in Jesus and who go to church, but you've never given control of your life to Him. I'm asking you to give control of your life to the Lord today. If that's you, I want to just lead you in a prayer. Just no one's looking around now at every campus. And the reason I ask you not to look around is just so every person can just have a moment alone with God. But if you need to give your life to Jesus, give control of your life to Jesus, if you related to maybe an area of your life, maybe it's not the same, maybe it is the same, but an area of your life that you've been in bondage to that area for years, and you need that broken over you, it's a relationship with Jesus that sets us free from the power of sin. And if that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. Just, I just want you just, just right there in your seat as I pray out loud. I want you just to pray just right in your, just in your heart to God. If that's you at every campus, if you need to give your life to Jesus, I want you just to pray this prayer right now. Just, just say, dear God, just tell them that, dear God, I ask you to forgive me. for all of my sin. Tell him that. I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. And I receive Jesus Christ today as my Lord and as my Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me today. Now, no one's looking around, but if you prayed that prayer and you gave your life to the Lord right now, now again, at every campus, would you just put your hand up where I can see it? Put it, put it way up high. Y'all be proud to put it up. Y'all be proud to put it. Put it way up high. Way up high so I can see. Put it way up high. Every campus. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. God bless you. Okay, you can put your hands down. If you raised your hand, only those of you that raised your hand, 
if you raised your hand and said, I prayed that prayer, just those of you that raised your hand, would you just raise your head and look at me right now? If you, if you prayed that prayer, just look at me, all right? Every campus, just look at me, all right? I'm, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I'm so proud of you because I know it takes courage. It takes courage to do what you did. Well, I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. It's very, very important. And that is in just a minute, we're all going to stand. And when we stand, I'm going to ask you to step out from your seat. If you want to ask your family to come with you, that'd be great. One of the best things you could ever do. Our friend to come with you. I'm going to ask you to step out and just come and stand right in front of me right here and let me pray with you. I want to pray with you, okay? If you're on another campus or if you're watching me on the screen right now, I'm going to ask you just to come to the front so I can pray with you. Listen to me. Jesus said, if you'll take a public stand for me, I'll take a public stand for you before my Father. So if you prayed that prayer and you gave your life to the Lord, make up your mind right now. And there were many of you that you're going to come. You're going to, no matter which campus you're attending, as soon as we stand up, you're going to step out and you'll come right here to the front. Just face me and I want to pray with you, all right? Holy Spirit, I pray you'll draw every person at every campus that prayed that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.